Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, variants are pushing hospitals to the brink, and that's causing a shortage of one of the key drugs for COVID-19 patients. We'll give you the latest on that. Vaccine passports could be our ticket to normalcy, but is Canada ready for that? We also remember Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh, who passed away earlier today at age 99. And contradictions continue to pile up in the federal government's approach to military misconduct. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We've got to talk about COVID-19 and this wave and the impact that it's having on so many different aspects of healthcare, uh, not just here in Ontario, but right across the country. Uh, we know that hospitals are, are being really heavily impacted by this, and we're going to give you some details on that. And we know, quote, the vaccine problem, and although there's a problem with supply, and a lot of people are saying, look, when is this going to happen? Well, that's not the only medication that apparently uh, is uh, in short supply. And uh, for people that are actually being admitted to hospital, there is a, a protocol, a medical protocol that they're supposed to be following, uh, but they're running out of the uh, the drugs that they're supposed to be using to do this. There's a great report in the uh, the Globe and Mail today uh, that talks all about this. Uh, Kelly Grant, who is the health reporter for the Globe and Mail, joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Kelly, thank you for the time. Glad you could be with us this morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, we we I think glad to hear some months ago that uh, you know as as more people this isn't the first and second wave of course were being admitted to hospital that they were developing a protocol and and a and a, 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 a way to actually deal with an awful lot of this stuff and of course we heard a lot of it was have steroid but there is another uh, drug uh, an anti-inflammatory anti-inflammatory drug I'm sorry uh, that has been used maybe you can explain that to our listeners and what's going on with it. Sure. I think a little bit of background here will probably help. And that's sure. that when, you know, when the coronavirus, uh, SARS-CoV-2 sort of first emerged, doctors all over the world were trying to look for ways to treat the illness that it caused, COVID-19. So one of the things they did was they threw sort of existing drugs into clinical trials to try them out and see if they would help. And now about a year later, when it comes to these kind of repurposed drugs, we really sort of only have two that have been shown to be effective at moderately reducing mortality in patients who are critically ill, the kind who are in hospital with serious disease. Uh, one of those is dexamethasone, which is a steroid, and sort of related steroids seem to work well, too. And then another one is this drug called tocilizumab. And tocilizumab is actually normally a drug that is used to treat uh, rheumatoid arthritis and the side effects of some cancer treatments. But they've repurposed it and found that, you know, it does seem to help with um, severe cases of COVID-19. The difference between steroids and tocilizumab is that steroids are old, they're generic, they're cheap. The supply of them has generally been pretty good. Tocilizumab is still on patent, and it was only made in small amounts because there's not that many people who have the, the illness that, they, that the drug was designed for. Um, so now that COVID-19 has really taken off in this third wave, not just in Canada, but really, you know, across Europe and South America and India and other places, the demand for this drug is very high. So there's limited supplies of it around the world and in Canada. And in Ontario, now that the number of people requiring high-level care for ICU has gone up so dramatically in such a short period of time, they're running short of this drug. So there's a group called the Ontario Science Table, and what they've done is they're now advising hospitals to ration it, and some of them were running out of the drug this week. 
But with that in mind, are they comfortable with rationing this? I mean, because this is the same debate we had about the vaccines, right? Like, well, this, you know, the, the, the second vaccine is supposed to come, what, four weeks later? Now they're saying, no, it could be four months later. Uh, and, and I know the manufacturers weren't crazy about this. If they've already decided on a specified uh, dosage for the people that are being treated, and now they're going to ration this, uh, how's that going to impact the patients? So now they think that these first steps they're taking as far as, as rationing goes, which is to recommend that the drug be given in smaller amounts and that only one dose, not two dose, be given. They think that based on the clinical trials, this will probably be okay. Um, where they feel a little more nervous is when they out and out run out of the drug and feel as though they can't offer it to patients. Now, there's lots of efforts being made to try to sort of fix this issue. Um, you know, the federal government has actually bought a supply specifically for COVID patients, um, and they are expecting a resupply next week. Um, but it's not clear that it is going to be enough, particularly in Ontario. So it's, I, I think it is less the giving of small amounts and more the prospect of, of just outright running out, which some hospitals have for a few days. Now, again, like at a system level, they've been trying to coordinate things so that if there is some left in stock at one hospital, they can send it to another hospital that's busier. But as the number of these seriously ill COVID patients keeps climbing, that becomes harder and harder to do. Let me ask you about about the supply situation, because I know in the piece that you had today in the Globe, uh, you quoted a spokesman from the Ministry of Health, David Jensen, who says that uh, there is sufficient uh, quality, uh, quantities right now to date to meet the demand. Uh, and, and then, of course, you've talked to the Scarborough Health Network, who said that they're out of the stuff. And uh, Dr. Morris from the United Health Network says uh, that there is a limited supply and maybe no supply in some hospitals, too. Uh, so we're getting kind of mixed messaging here from the government and from the people that are on the front lines. Yeah, I, I mean, I tend to trust the people who are the ones who are looking at empty cupboards and saying, so I do have I. this yeah. medication to give. Um, I do think, though, I, I'm not in any way suggesting that the government is not trying to be truthful about this, but I think what they're doing is they're looking at, like, what is the supply across the province, right? Mm-hmm. And that provincial supply, at least as of two days ago when I was reporting on this, was not out. There was still some drug left in the province. It was just a question of whether how quickly that remaining supply could be moved around to some of the hospitals that um, that were running out. And on top of that, like it is also true that they are expecting another shipment from Roche, the company that makes the drug next week. But again, the question will be, as, as is a big question for everybody right now, yeah. with the large number of COVID patients that are coming in hospital, like, will it be enough? Will it be enough of this drug? Will there be enough staff? Will there be enough ventilators? Will there be enough beds? Um, I'm sure you saw this morning that um, late yesterday, Ontario Health, which is the sort of uh, sort of organizing entity for uh, hospitals and healthcare in Ontario, you know, sent out a memo saying we now have to once again stop all but emergency and very urgent surgeries because we need to take all of the staff who are doing other things and redeploy them to focusing on COVID, and that's a that's a really big step, and it's one they haven't taken since the beginning of the pandemic. Since this uh, this drug that uh, that has proved to be useful, of course, in, in the treatment of COVID-19, uh, seems to be in, in short supply and very much in demand, what does that do to those people that are already using it? Uh, is there a problem with that, Kelly? The, the folks that, well, as you say, that, that may be dealing with arthritis or rheumatoid arthritis, any number of things like that, uh, are they going to be hard done by because of this too? Yeah, so what both the company and the government say is that there continues to be enough supply for those patients. And in fact, um, 
one of the things that sort of arthritis doctors in the country have been trying to do is encourage their patients to switch to a subcutaneous take-home version of this medication so that more of the IV version, which is what COVID patients need, will be available. So other parts of the system are trying to help, and they are mindful of making sure that this drug is available for patients with, uh, with rheumatoid arthritis and cancer. You mentioned that there's limited supply and that there's, a, there's still a patent situation here, uh, which means they can't make generics on this, obviously, which would alleviate the situation. Uh, is there a way they can ramp that process up without any missing important steps? Um, it's hard to say, especially because we're talking about, you know, this, we're talking about a very imminent surge, right? So some of the mm-hmm. you know, various steps that people talk about, like, you know, compulsory licensing of, of companies that have patents on drugs, like none of these are solutions that fix a problem in short order. Um, what Hoffman LaRoche, the company that makes the drug, told me is, you know, they are trying to make more. They are doing these, you know, sort of special contract deals with the federal government, which is not normally how drugs come into the country. Um, Health Canada allowed foreign labeled versions of the drug to come in earlier this year in order to try to like speed up the supply it's the same drug it's just that there are specific labeling requirements usually requiring french translation when drugs come into canada so instead of going through that step to make a special canadian label they said like just you know take the drug off shelves in other countries with their label and send it on over so they are trying to find ways to alleviate this but like at its core when this many patients are are falling seriously ill with COVID, it's just very tough to turn on a dime and try to solve some of these problems. Exactly. Uh, great reporting on this. Uh, Kelly, thank you so much for the time today. Really do appreciate it. Okay. Thanks for having me. Kelly Grant, of course, health reporter for the Globe and Mail. Check that story out. Uh, and it talks about, uh, well, some of the dire circumstances that are existing within the healthcare system because of the, the number of new cases that we've got. Uh, to that point, uh, we're so pleased to welcome to the program Jeff Semple, senior correspondent for Global National, uh, who spent some time in uh, Toronto Hospital. Jeff, first of all, glad to have you back on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Hey, yeah, it's great to be with you. I'm always concerned about the numbers that we see and we hear from the medical experts that say, look, at uh, this is getting out of control. How would you classify this? You watched the operation in, 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 in the, uh, Toronto Hospital right now. You saw what's happening in ICU units. What did you see and, and, and what kind of an impact did it have on you? Yeah, I mean, it was a very unsettling visit to be sure. So we spent um, the better part of a day earlier this week inside uh, one hospital, Humber River Hospital in northwest Toronto, uh, which is in one of the, what continues to be one of the hardest hit neighborhoods, you know, in the country by this pandemic. And, you know, we'd been to that hospital during the first wave and, and during the second wave and returned now to see how things are going. And the picture was more dire than the one we had seen in the first or second wave. Um, to be frank, it was, you know, we saw patients, you know, even stretchers in hospitals, sort of the hallway medicine that um, people often refer to as, you know, people, like they are just completely overwhelmed. Um, and, you know, not only a shortage of beds, which is a concern, but also a shortage of staff these days um, as a result of the fact that many of them have, have quit uh, in recent weeks, uh, nurses in particular. Uh, and a number of the doctors and nurses told us that, that some of their colleagues had just, you know, called it a day, left the profession, mostly citing burnout. Um, and that that meant the rest of them then had to, you know, fill in, step up to fill that void now 13 months into this pandemic. Um, and, the, you know, the final thing that really jumped out was just the changing face of the pandemic. You know, when we were there in the first and second waves, it was largely older people filling the beds in the intensive care unit, the ICU. 
you know, but we did see the faces that match the statistics that we've been hearing now where, you know, most of the people were younger. I mean, most of the patients in the ICU now, the most seriously sick patients are under the age of 60. Their fastest growing group is in their 40s. Um, so these are, you know, younger people than we're used to seeing. Um, and part of that is, you know, the fact that the older generation is, is being vaccinated now. Uh, but also, you know, this, these virus variants that we've heard so much about are, you know, really, you know, lethal, contagious, dangerous, and they are affecting a younger generation in a way that we didn't see in the first or their second wave. Jeff, we got the news, of course, uh, late yesterday that they were going to start canceling surgeries or postponing surgeries anyway. Uh, but uh, to your reporting as well, though, there's, uh, I, I guess, uh, some consideration here about a redeployment of, of some staff. In other words, uh, one hospital that may be overwhelmed may have to borrow staff from, from, from other facilities or other departments there because of, of, the, of the crush that they're feeling, especially in ICUs. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think, you know, that makes complete sense, and, and they're doing that with patients as well. I mean, when we were there, we followed... Uh, a nurse around the ICU as she, you know, worked the phones and tried to find other hospitals in the city to move patients. Um, because as I say, the Humber River Hospital is in one of the hardest hit neighborhoods in the city. And, you know, all of the hospital staff that we, you know, spoke to, seven or eight of them and doctors and nurses, and they all sort of echoed the importance of, you know, taking the vaccines first to the hardest hit neighborhoods, which we are now, of course, seeing in, in the province of Ontario after some delay, and also vaccinating essential workers. So, you know, not just the doctors and nurses on the front lines, but the, you know, the factory workers, the, the grocery store clerks, uh, because, you know, they are seeing a lot of them up close and personal in these hospital beds. Um, and, you know, you noted there, Bill, I mean, the, the news that they're canceling non-emergency surgeries. And I think, you know, hopefully that will that will help. I mean, of course, it's terrible news if, if you were waiting for one of those surgeries. But as far as, you know, the big picture in these hospitals are concerned, they canceled those surgeries ahead of the first wave. And it made a big difference in terms of their capacity. Uh, what we saw this week in Humber River Hospital was a hospital overwhelmed by the fact that they were at once fighting a pandemic while also still trying to cater to, to non-emergency surgeries and dealing with, of course, you know, people who come in sick with other ailments. Uh, and so, you know, trying to juggle all of those things is, is proving to be an extremely difficult task, even for staff that are hardened by the first and second wave. They said they haven't dealt with anything like this third wave. And, and just to get the enormity of this, and this is what I was uh, so taken back when in your reporting on this over the last couple of days, Jeff, uh, when we, we use the terminology, we need more beds, but it's not just beds. I mean, if you're admitted to an ICU, uh, there's the there's the ventilator that may be possible and, and possible, you know, needed. Uh, there's the medications, and as we just heard in the, our previous segment, there's a shortage of some of those medications right now. Uh, to suggest that these ICUs are overtaxed, I think, is probably a massive understatement at this stage. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's right. And I mean, you, you mentioned, you know, the shortage of beds, the, the shortage of drugs. And as I noted earlier, I mean, the shortage of staff um, was really chilling. And actually, Jay, uh, Dr. Jamie Spiegelman, who's um, a doctor in the ICU at Humber River Hospital, told me that every day, I think they have around 48 beds um, in his part of the ICU. And he said every day, a few of them are actually sitting empty not because they don't have the patients, of course. I mean, the beds, you know, there are a lot of people waiting for that bed, but they simply don't have the staff to staff the bed. Um, so, you know, it's one thing to build a field hospital. It's another thing to train a doctor and a nurse, of course. And, you know, the staff shortages and the fact that we are seeing real burnout uh, to the point where people are leaving the profession. Um, you know, we talked so much through this pandemic about the toll it was taking on the frontline care workers, but now some are clearly being pushed to, to the point where they've had to leave. Uh, and obviously that creates massive problems for a health system under strain. 
Jeff, one of the concerns that was raised, I guess, through the first two waves now, uh, is, is because of this overcrowding at the ICUs that some medical staff were actually being forced to triage the people within there. Uh, who gets the, the maximum care? Who would do we just say, look, maybe not. I'm sorry. Maybe you don't get the same sort of medication as, as the person in the cubicle beside you or right there. Are, are they at that stage already with, with, because of the overcrowding that's occurring? No, I mean, I think what we witnessed was not that, but it was on the precipice of that. And, and they talked about that. I mean, the fact that we are approaching that point where we are, they are worried they're going to have to start making those types of decisions. I mean, who to save, right? And um, if you can't save everyone. So I, I'm fortunate to say that, it, at least from my experience at this hospital, they weren't there yet, but that was what they kept warning about. I mean, Dr. Jamie Spiegelman described the current situation as the tipping point. Uh, we are on the tipping point right now. Um, and, you know, I, I got to say, I, I went into that hospital not expecting to see it as bad as it was. Um, and, you know, this is, as I say, we've been in that hospital many times uh, over the first and second wave. But, uh, you know, he, Jamie Spiegelman described it as the tipping point, and it certainly looked like that from what we saw. Well, and as you reported, of course, uh, we don't even know for it the, the, the maximum. I mean, who knows, uh, which is why we'll be watching for further updates on this on Global National. Jeff, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the great work you've done on this. And uh, take, take care, and we'll talk again soon. Yeah, my pleasure. Great to talk to you. Take care. Jeff Semple, of course, senior correspondent with Global National. There's a chilling report about what happened in that, and that's just the one hospital. I mean, you know, magnify that by a number of different hospitals, including here in the Hamilton, London areas, uh, and right across the province. Uh, there seems to be maybe a, 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 not so much of a problem in some of the northern Ontario hospitals, knock on wood, but uh, we'll certainly keep you posted as to what's going on and the impact that it is having. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The other day we started talking about uh, vaccine passports, and uh, even President Biden, of course, with his address to the nation a couple of nights ago, uh, was referring to that, and uh, they decided that they don't want to have a national policy on that. I'm not so sure that's going to last based on some of the pressure that they're getting. Uh, in this country, though, Federal Health Minister Patty Haydu uh, says her government is still considering the use of the so-called vaccine passports that could allow Canadians to travel outside the country without facing quarantine measures. Now, uh, the minister says that Canada is prepared to align with other countries to ensure that Canadians have the documents that they're going to need. We remain committed to having those conversations with our international partners because however that conversation evolves, we want to make sure that Canadians have the right kinds of uh, documentation for future travel. Well, uh, whether or not they're hesitant about doing this or not, they may be forced into it simply because of what's happening in other countries. Uh, joining us to talk about this is Scott Gilmore. Scott is an editor-at-large for McLean's and a senior fellow at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the University of Toronto. Scott, thank you for the time. Great to have you with us today. Great to be here, Bill. We had a, a brief conversation about this the other day. As we're trying to get some uh, some more facts about what's happening on here. Uh, and as, as you're reporting in the in the piece in the, in, the, in McLean's, uh, we may not have a choice in this. I mean, if, if all the other countries, the UK and the European Union and others, uh, decide this is the way to go, do we really have any choice but to tag along? Well, I mean, we always have the choice to stay at home. But if Canadians yeah. want to get back out in the world, then absolutely we'll, we will need to do this. And you know, newsflash, we've been doing it since 1944. So none of this is new. Well, and therein lies, the, you know, the revelation here is that, you know, there's always been the, the categories about who you, where you can go, et cetera. I mean, uh, how many times have we seen this uh, in real life or, you know, somebody's going to a, a third world country, et cetera. There's a number of vaccinations you have to get and that has to be validated before they'll even let you on the plane. So really, this is this is not really something new, as, as you're mentioning, uh, and something that we probably should be embracing anyway. 
Well, you know, it's it's not even just you know traveling to the developing world or some of the more exotic locations. Right now, as we speak, and it's been this way since before the pandemic, the U.S. State Department requires you to have 14 different back proofs of vaccination to apply for a visa. Now, Canadians don't have to do that because Americans assume that we have the same vaccinations that they do. But it's already on the books. And so and, and I, I suspect a lot of your listeners right now are sort of rolling their eyes because they actually have those little yellow vaccine books, booklets yeah. that many of us have had to carry around the world with us. Yeah, it's, uh, it's tucked right there beside your passport, I guess, if you're going to be doing an awful lot of traveling. So th- there could be an inevitability to this. What about, the, by extension, though, and, and this is, I think, where it gets a little bit sticky, is is using these sorts of passports domestically, the vaccine passport. In other words, uh, you know, you can't get into a Blue Jays game unless you show your passport, and something like that. Now, some people may think that's extreme, uh, but it is under discussion right now. Well, you know what? You can't get into a Blue Jays game right now for a lot of reasons. For example, well, you yeah. show up drunk. They're not going to let you in. If you're not wearing shoes, they're not going to let you in. Right now, your kids can't go to school unless they're showing their, their vaccines. You know, I can't get a driver's license unless I can prove that uh, my eyes are straight. So this idea that this is imposing some sort of anti-democratic dis- democratic dystopian restriction on our, our rights and liberties is, is nonsense, in my opinion. Well, and we've been doing this, as you mentioned earlier, for quite some time, uh, simply because you want to be safe. And, and as I mentioned on the show yesterday, <laughs> like if I'm going to go to a Jays game, I, I feel a lot more comfortable if I knew the person sitting beside me was vaccinated. I mean, because we, you know, just finished talking about how these variants are having such an impact and how how dangerous that this can be in situations like this. This is really a matter of common sense, isn't it? Well, it's it's common sense, but I think there's a there's a, a deeper, more profound philosophical point here about the social contract. Canadians live objectively in one of the greatest countries in the world. And the reason that we do is because we've all agreed on certain unwritten rules. We treat each other with with a certain amount of respect. So we're not jumping queues. We're not cheating on our taxes. We're not beating somebody up in the street so we can take away their Big Mac. And this is just another example of that. If you want to live in, in a country that's safe and healthy and stable, then you've got to act safe and healthy and stable. And that means maybe lining up for a few minutes to get a 10 second jab in your arm which honestly isn't asking very much. And the numbers we're seeing these days indicate that, well, in the latest surveys they've done anyway, uh, about 75% of the people they've surveyed right now said, yeah, they'll, they'll get the vaccine. That, that's a lot higher than it was even two months ago. So I'm, I'm getting the sense that there's a move in that direction anyway. So if that is the case, and, and if we have a number of 75 or 80% compliance with the vaccination, what's the big deal to say, yeah, I got vaccinated? Yeah, absolutely. And, and also, you know, from my perspective, I'm desperate to get vaccinated because I want to get back out in the world. I want to be able to go to that Blue Blue Jays game. I want to be able to fly to France. I want to be able to cross the border and see my friends in the States. So, uh, you know, get out of my way. I'm, (laughs) I'm heading for that vaccine. Well, as there is with just about every argument, and you got into the idea about, you know, my individual rights, yada, yada, yada. And we've heard this with so many things. We, we heard that with closed-circuit cameras, you know, when they were putting them in in banks or on city streets uh, because of high crime areas and things of this nature. There's always that element that, well, what about my rights? I, I don't see that there's an infringement here. No, not at all. You're, look, you're absolutely free not to get vaccinated. It's your right not to. So be it. But your rights rights and freedoms ends right at the point where it begins to impinge on my rights and freedoms. So if I'm going to be at a Jays game, I want to make sure the person next to me isn't coughing uh, coronavirus all over me. And if, if that's the case, then you have to get a vaccine to come into the game. 
I, I, I don't want to get too deep into the legal weeds here, but I understand because a lot of people are basing this, uh, well, I have my rights, and uh, you know they'll see some of the reaction from some of the Americans that are refusing to do this. Uh, you just hit on a very cogent point here. Uh, our Bill of Rights differs a little bit from the American Bill of Rights in that the public good supersedes individual rights. Uh, in other words, you, you can't, as you just mentioned, say, I'm, I'm going to do this or not do this if it's going to bring harm to somebody else. And I think there's a pretty strong argument right now that if you're not vaccinated, the potential for you to bring harm to somebody else is pretty real yeah if you want to go and live up in northern manitoba in a in a cabin on a lonesome lake then knock yourself out but if you want to be in downtown toronto where you bump into literally thousands of people every day and you literally bump into them then yeah we expect you to get vaccinated and and we're having that debate right now i mean with the anti-maskers and you know the people that don't think that even what we're supposed to be doing before we get vaccinated uh is is ethical and they don't want to be part of that and as you say they have a right to do that uh but if a restaurant or a, a store says okay you can't come in uh, that's their right, too, to protect their customers and to protect their staff. And in other words, I guess what people have to understand is if they're not going to get vaccinated or wear the, the mask, whatever the case might be, there are consequences to that. Yeah, you know, Bill, uh, as you were saying that, I feel my blood pressure going up. I'm, you're really getting the polite <laughs> version of me this morning because I, I spent a good part of my life when, when I used to be a diplomat and, and now my current roles working in some of the more some of the, the, the less fortunate parts of the world, Afghanistan, Iraq, Haiti, and that. And then when I come back here and I see these precious toffs marching up and down in front of the various legislatures because they don't want to put a piece of cotton on their face to protect their fellow man, I got to say, like, I, I, I see red. The, my, my old boxing instincts kick in, and I have to sort of take a <laughs> breath and walk away. I mean, really, if any of your listeners right now feel that they shouldn't have to wear a mask when they walk into the local pharmacy, just take a look around. You've got no problems left if that's what you're, ups- what you're upset about, if that's what you're offended about, if that's what you're defending. So put things in perspective. Take your head out of your behind and, and come on, get with the program. Well, and, and because the arguments against it are so weak, as far as I'm concerned, but we've already covered the vote of individual rights. And I, I know that I saw some of the stuff on social media about this the other day uh, that said, well, you know, there's, there's no guarantee that even if you're vaccinated that you're going to you know, be 100 percent bulletproof. We know that. There's no guarantees in life with anything. I know, yeah. Nobody's ever said you were going to be 100% covered on all this stuff. Uh, you know, anything can happen. You know, as, as, as one doctor said, yeah, there's a chance you're getting hit by lightning when you're going for the vaccine, too, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't go out and get it. Uh, you know, yeah. they, they, they come up and they try to grasp some of these very, very flimsy excuses as to why they don't want to do it. I, I just don't see the rationale here. Yeah, you know, I, I have friends who spend time, you know, really trying to figure out these different cognitive um, problems where people come up with very illogical uh, conclusions to some things. And a lot of it comes back to basically a psychological need to feel control. You know, we, we do live in a fast-moving world. There's, it's a lot of chaos around us, even though there's less chaos now than there was 20 years ago. And so for some of these people who feel that they need to take control of themselves by not getting a vaccine, by not getting a mask, I would say to them, listen, once you actually get the vaccine, once you put the mask on, you're actually going to have more control of your life because you're going to be able to go wherever you want. You're going to be able to interact more freely. You're not going to get told to leave the restaurants or, or told to, to wait outside the grocery store. So if you want control in your life, you want to take back some authority, some agency, put on a mask, get a vaccine, stop arguing. 
So why are the politicians, and we just played the clip before you joined us here with uh, Minister Haidu, uh, and even the Prime Minister said he's not really big on this idea. I, they must understand the rationale behind this. Why don't they just say, look, we're, we're doing this. This is the way out of this thing. We're going to do this. Well, we could do a whole other segment on how feckless our politicians have been from <laughs> the, the from the mayors, the premiers, to the prime minister himself. I, I, Scott, it's only, three hour sh- it's only a three-hour show. Yeah. I don't think we could get into that. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're really, arguably, this has been the greatest lack of leadership that we've seen across the country at almost every level that we that we've had since you know since the Second World War. And so, with our prime minister and with the various ministers that are involved, honestly, every single one of them is waiting to see which way the wind blows. And in some cases, to almost a homicidal homicidal degree, like we saw yesterday with the Ontario Solicitor General acknowledging on CBC Radio. That yes, they knew that the uh, the ICU rates were going to head to this direction of 500 a day, but they wanted to wait until it actually happened so they could confirm their predictions before they did anything. I mean, that's criminal negligence. And so, with the case with the prime minister not having an opinion yet about whether or not we should have vaccine passports or not, it's because, honest to God, there's just not an ounce of leadership we found in PMO these days, and they're simply waiting to see what Canadians want. And so, if Canadians are right now, you know, at 70% wanting vaccines. Well, maybe they're at 40% wanting the passports. And when it hits 52%, well, then suddenly our prime minister is going to develop vision. I was going back and forth with a good friend, Richard Brennan, who covered Queen's Park and, and Ponderby Hill for so many years ago. He's retired now. but and, and that's basically what I said. I said, you know, nobody expected these guys to get it right all the time. This was a brand new thing. It was a pandemic. Uh, we didn't know much about it. But all we asked for was please be honest with us and forthright about what you're doing. And if you screw up, okay, we'll deal with it. But they haven't been. And and now they, they've basically betrayed our trust. So now I, know, I, I can understand why some people are saying, I don't believe a thing they say anymore. Yeah, I, I don't either. I, you know, and I, I fight cynicism constantly. I, you know, I'm, through my career, you know, as a civil servant and then in various other capacities, I've worked a lot with politicians, not just in Canada, but around the world. And for the most part, I've always landed on the fact that they're sincere, they're trying their best. And, the, you know, the conspiracies and all of the, the maligning that goes on in the, in the media and in social media is really off the, off the mark. But this last 12 months, I really have wondered, why would you want to be, why would you run for office? Why would you want to be the leader of a G7 country and then walk away from its greatest crisis in 100 years? Like, what inspired you to want to, to sacrifice so much to sit in the prime minister's chair, but then as soon as the crisis, national crisis hits, pretend it's not your problem, that it, it belongs to all the different provinces? It's, I, I don't have an answer to that. Uh, I don't know. Uh, well, no, I don't think anybody does. Uh, check it out in McLean's. It's online, of course. Uh, great piece uh, all about, uh, well, the things we've just been talking about, about masking and the passports and everything else. Uh, great talking with you, Scott. Thanks so much. Uh, stay well, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Hopefully we'll see each other at a Blue Jay game in the not-too-distant future. <laughs> Absolutely. Take care, Bill. Have a good one. <laughs> Take care. Scott Gilmore, of course, from uh, McLean's editor-at-large. This is the Bill Kelly Show, 980 CFPL London, 900 CHML Hamilton. Uh, news uh, earlier this morning, just a little while ago, uh, about the the passing of uh, Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh, and uh, great reaction to that. A lot of reaction. Uh, uh, many, many people, world leaders, uh, sending tributes in. Uh, joining us to talk about this is Redmond Shannon. Redmond, of course, is a European correspondent for Global News. Uh, joining us from the UK, uh, Redmond. Thank you so much for the time on a very busy day. I'm glad you could join us for a while. Good morning, Bill. Uh, 99 years old, I guess not unexpected because of the health problems he had as recently as just a couple of weeks ago and, a, and another heart procedure. But uh, what, what, what's the mood over there right now but about this news? I think, uh, yeah, as you hinted at there, perhaps not uh, shocking, but still very sad and a, a very somber day for, for the UK. Be, be, be people uh, royalists or 
or not royalists over here. This is a man who served as uh, as consort longer than anyone else, uh, married to a serving monarch. He has been part of British, uh, the fabric of British life in some respects uh, for so long since he married Queen Elizabeth in 1947. Uh, he, as you said, 99 years old. He would have been 100 on June 10th, just just didn't quite make it, unfortunately. His health, obviously, ailing in recent years. He uh, had that heart procedure at St. Bartholomew's Hospital in London last month, spent a month in hospital uh, before and after that. So obviously, at that age, it's going to be very difficult to recover fully. And although we don't know what the cause of death was at the moment, obviously, being 99, it's going to be a struggle. So I think uh, it's somber, it's sad, a lot of tributes. Flowers are already ready gathering at uh, Buckingham Palace and uh, a lot of uh, prominent people are making uh, making warm statements about the Duke and his passing. Redmond, over the years there have been a, a lot of, uh, well, let me say ups and downs about the coverage of the royal family, not just with the British press, but I think probably in the global press as well, uh, right around the world, uh, to do with the Princess Di's death, or of course Charles's antics and, and Harry more recently. Prince Philip seemed to rise above all that. There was a, he had a certain sense of popularity, a gr- great sense of humor, of course, although sometimes his his, his uh, missives got into uh, got him into a little bit of trouble too. But the, he seemed to be over and above a, a lot of the fray and and the controversy about the royals. I think I think a lot of people over there just plain liked the guy. Yeah, I think that there was a respect for the charitable work that he did um, over his time as a serving royal he made more than 22,000 royal engagements which is a remarkable number uh he set up the duke of edinburgh award scheme in 1956 to encourage you know youth achievement and that of course is around the world including in canada and a huge legacy there uh so people respect that yeah i think you know there was a sort of mixed feelings about him sometimes because of the uh, on PC comments he would make from time yeah. to time, sometimes mm-hmm. jokingly, but sometimes maybe a little insensitive, particularly when he was visiting former colonies of Great Britain, saying things that well maybe didn't go down too well, but he was a bit of a joker. And, and by all accounts from people who knew him, he was warm, he was gregarious, whereas the Queen was more reserved. He played the role of uh, perhaps uh, engaging people a little more and... Uh, uh, whatever people thought of him outside looking in, I think uh, it appears as though people who knew him did like him a lot. In the era of COVID, uh, obviously there's going to have to be some sort of a ceremony, I guess, a, a tribute to him, a, a funeral of some description. Uh, I, I know that it, it's early. It's only been a couple of hours, of course, since the announcement was made here. But do you have any inkling at all, Redmond, as to how they're going to handle this? Yeah, well, I mean, even before uh, COVID, uh, there was, uh, an indication from the Duke himself, who he didn't want a big fuss. He didn't want Westminster uh, Abbey. He didn't want uh, a, a massive state funeral. So it won't be a state funeral, and he will. Uh, his body will lie uh, at rest in Windsor Castle. He died in Windsor this morning, ahead of his funeral in St. George's Chapel, the chapel where uh, people might remember um, Harry and Meghan got married a few mm-hmm. years ago. And uh, these, this is what he wanted. Um, and the simplicity of his wishes for his funeral is perhaps just as well, given the pandemic 
and um, the uh, the College of Arms here who are looking after this um, have said that uh, the, the funeral arrangements uh, have been revised a little bit more because of the pandemic and they're asking that members of the public do not come to the funeral or participate in any events um, as part of the funeral uh, because uh, we're still in a in a lockdown despite uh, the progress being made here on vaccines and the low infection rate in the UK at the moment. It's still in lockdown and uh, we, you don't want cases and spikes to be as a result of uh, of a funeral of uh, of the consort of the Queen. Exactly. Uh, still more to come on this, obviously, as we go through. And I know it's a very busy day for you. We'll be watching for uh, updates on this on Global National later on this evening. Uh, as always, Redmond, thank you so much for the time. Great talking with you. Stay well. You too, Bill. Have a great day. Bye. Take care. Redmond Shannon, of course, European correspondent for Global News over in London with the death of Prince Philip. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Some concerns still being raised in Ottawa about uh, some of the contradictions that are piling up uh, with the federal government's approach to military misconduct and the investigation into that, notwithstanding the fact that uh, a lot of people are concerned about what's happening and some of the stories we're hearing. Uh, just a couple of days ago, I guess, actually, now Lieutenant General Wayne Eyre, who is the acting chief of defense staff now, uh, said he is promising to create a safer environment within the military following allegations of sexual misconduct. Uh, according to a latest Nanos poll, uh, the majority of Canadians don't think he can do that and they don't think it's it's doable uh, which is a sad commentary i guess on the way people are looking at some of the news they've heard over the last little while joining us to talk about this is a christian leapart who is a professor at the royal military college of canada and a queen's university fellow at the mcdonald laurier institute christian always a pleasure thank you so much for the time today good morning bill my pleasure as, as we go through this and the allegations and this is a very serious business of course uh I, I'm, tr- I'm trying, as, a, as, as just as an observer, Christian, to try to separate the politics from this, uh, which is happening in Ottawa, I guess, all the time anyway. You know, the partisan politics and trying to the, the gotcha stuff. But it, it, there, there's a there's a legal issue that we need to deal with here and an ethical issue that we need to deal with here. Uh, a lot of the concern that's being raised after the initial investigations in Ottawa uh, is about not just the the, the alleged conduct of, of, of Vance and others, uh, but also of the way that the ministry has handled this. So, what are your thoughts as you see this unfold over the last little while so i think the first element here is the fundamental constitutional principle that governs our westminster parliamentary system is responsible government and under that ministerial responsibility so that ultimately the minister is responsible for what happens in the department Mm -hmm. and so i think there's some frustration for instance on my part that so far we haven't seen the minister step up and for instance the minister kept on saying that uh, they kept the chief of defense staff in place. Well, the chief of defense staff serves at pleasure, as do all senior members of the civil service. And so if the government no longer had confidence in the chief of the defense staff, um, they could have let the chief of defense staff go and picked someone else. So the fact that they left him in place expresses signals that the government had confidence even after allegations were raised. And so I think the government needs to take some ownership of that. And the government also needs to take some ownership of then subsequently having appointed someone who had allegations against themselves. And so I think what I'm seeing here is that all the, uh, um, all the criticism is, ex- is directed at the Canadian Armed Forces without also the government that ultimately in a democracy governs those armed forces taking responsibility for what's transpiring in the institution. That's not to absolve... 
um, uh, the acting chief of defense staff or anybody in the Canadian Armed Forces from challenges around Op Honor, which was the policy put in place to mitigate um, uh, sexual misconduct, to try to change the institutional culture. It's not to absolve anybody who serves in the, in the institution who has been a victim or who has been a perpetrator. Um, but I think what we've seen is a lack of political leadership on this file, uh, where uh, politicians, I think, treat it as sort of a no-win politically, and so they just leave the Canadian Armed Forces to sort it out for themselves. And that's, of course, what happened in 2015, and we saw the consequences of that, which is that it didn't achieve us the results that we wanted. So now we're going to go back, and we're going to once again tell the institution, well, go sort it out for yourself. Well, I think as the poll that you cited expresses, that Canadians are not confident that that strategy is going to work. There's an overriding question, and I guess this is probably one of the main tenets of any investigation in, into political activity, is who knew what and when did they know it? And, and as we start to get some information about that, Christian, it's, it's rather troubling uh, that uh, senior members, of, well, the defense minister certainly, uh, were getting mixed messages as to how much the prime minister knew and when he knew it, uh, which I find rather surprising. Uh, but, but we need to get some clarity on that, because as you say, there is a chain of command and a chain of responsibility here uh, that uh, I, I don't want to say that they're shirking it, but they don't seem to be as, as forthcoming as they should be about this information. Well, so look, I mean, Jonathan Vance, when he was posted to Naples in 2015, Frank Magazine wrote an article about um, some of his conduct. So for people in the PMO to say that they had no idea and they were unaware is completely disingenuous. It was open source information. And at the same time, of course, there had not been um, allegations that met the threshold of an investigation or so, so the presumption of innocence prevails. But certainly to say that we had no idea and we were completely blindsided is simply not a tenable approach given the information that was already in the public domain um, ever since the current government uh, took uh, took power. So but, I think. But question doesn't it doesn't it predate that? I mean, it was Stephen Harper, the former prime minister, uh, was briefed about some of this activity too? Was he not? So, and it shows, I think, the challenges that um, uh, political leadership has when allegations are made against someone in uniform or against any other member of the senior civil service. Think about the issues with regards to the governor general. Um, uh, but the allegations, for instance, don't necessarily meet the threshold of either uh, criminal misconduct or possibly having even transgressed uh, the code of discipline. And at the same time, the allegations are so sufficiently troubling um, because ultimately we need to make sure that people in the senior civil service, and especially those in uniform, are beyond reproach, both in terms of what Canadians expect of them uh, and in terms of the leadership that they need to provide to their own institutions. So it puts the political leadership in an extremely difficult and challenging position trying to, uh, trying to balance those, uh, those, two, uh, those two issues. But I think it also shows that um, you know, we, we do such careful selection around political candidates these days, right? We, we vet them. We go years back on their social media profiles, any sort of picture of sort of some, uh, uh, some libations and debauchery somewhere from 10 years ago now disqualifies candidates for running from political office because parties don't want to have, uh, have that sort of explode during an election. And yet, why is it that we don't do the same for the senior leadership in the civil service and make sure that before we ever appoint people, um, we vet them properly and that we also make it clear for, uh, to people that if allegations should surface, 
we are going to have to dismiss you. So if you have any ghosts in the closet, tell us now so we can make them public and we can say that these issues and these allegations have been dealt with. But trying to do this all behind closed doors, it shows that sooner or later it does blow up. Sooner or later it becomes public record, and then there's going to be a public reckoning. Either way, I mean, I, I can understand, and I'm not justifying it anyway, but I can understand why there's a hesitancy on part of the, of the minister and, and even the PMO at this stage, uh, because <laughs> there's, there's probably one of two options here. Neither one of them, I'm sure, are very palatable to them, Christian. One is, uh, we didn't know, which means they didn't do their due diligence. Uh, the other is, we did know and we didn't care, which is maybe even more egregious, you know, to simply say, well, so what? Uh, so they're, they're losing either way on this, but that's still information that needs to be out, in, in, I think, for the common good. Yeah, I think part of this is also that there, there's, there's, I think, a dimension that uh, defense is not currently a priority from where the current government wants to go with its policy objectives as a minority government. And so I think the government sees this as a distraction, just wants it to go away as quickly as possible. So I think there's some concern about if they step out and they own it, that that could be deleterious in terms of their electoral, for electoral success, and that it's also going to make an issue out of something that they don't want to make a, uh, a priority out of at this particular time. But the other problem is, of course, that I think, and we see this from Minister Sajjan, and I think this is where his, uh, his previous experience in, in police uniform perhaps may not be quite helpful, that he's very reticent to get involved in any operational matters of the department. Right? We immediately see this in terms of, I can't get involved, you know, if there's an investigation or evidence mm-hmm. or so forth. But of course, as the minister, ultimately, you are the person who's responsible for that department. You, the, 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 the buck stops with you. And so you do need to get involved when there are questions about the integrity um, of the of the leadership within the department and the way certain elements such as op honor are being handled. It was well known before this all blew up earlier this year that op honor was not achieving the objectives that it had set out to achieve. And I think one thing that we're hearing at, at witness testimony before committee, which I find painstaking and and and, and so terrible. Uh, when you hear these victims come forward, that the policy has not been effective, um, and yet the department has not engaged with stakeholders. It has not reached out more broadly, and that has been one of the fall-downs and failures of the policy. And so one of the things that the minister can direct and can do is obligate the department to make sure it consults more broadly when it puts in place the next mechanisms and the next policy that so that we have the diversity of experiences in Canadian society of dealing with issues of misconduct in general and sexual misconduct in particular integrated into the best practices within the department, which has not happened in the past and which appears still not to be the case. Is there a communication breakdown within the department, too? Because I know one of the more contentious points uh, was, as you mentioned, Minister Sejan's contention that, look it, I don't want to get involved in an ongoing investigation. I mean, that seemed to be the crux of it. And I want to maintain the integrity of the investigation. Uh, yet somebody, uh, I don't was certainly wasn't the minister, we're told, uh, gave the okay for the, for the Global News interview with Major Kelly Brennan that was aired a couple of weeks ago. Mercedes Stevenson, of course, from Global News did that. And, and, and I want to mind our people our listeners that this was not done in a covert way i mean they, they went through channels asked permission and and i'm told that uh, the assistant deputy minister of public affairs actually gave the thumbs up and said go ahead and do this which seems to go totally against what the minister was saying 
Well, but it replicates the patterns that we see, right? That the minister doesn't want to get in operations. He leaves the operational decisions on all these matters to the department. And I, my view is that the minister is extending too much operational discretion to the department, where I think members in uniform, civilian members of the Department of National Defense, as well as members of the government, of the opposition, and Canadians are looking to the minister, to the prime minister, and to the government for leadership on this very critical file. And we've seen these sort of interventions in the past. Doug Young in 1997 with his 12-point plan after the Somalia inquiry. So there is precedent. There's nothing illegal about taking ownership. There's nothing. You will undermine inherently the professional autonomy of the military and of the department. But I think this is what everybody, including if I read between the lines of what the acting chief of defense staff is saying, even the acting chief of defense staff is looking for some more political direction on what exactly do you want us to do and how do you want us to do it? We're happy to do it, but we're going to need some guidance here. One of the things that bothers me is, is again, an observer who's, who's looking to see uh, something that I think is, is wrong uh, to be corrected. Uh, is over the last couple of days, especially, Christian, it seems as if the focus of the discussion here has turned into the, the works within the ministry itself as opposed to uh, the military misconduct with Vance and, and, and of course, with Art McDonald to a certain extent and, and who knows who else uh, through there because they, they talk about how that permeates right through the ranks. And uh, those were some of the comments, of course, that, that Major Brennan made during her interview with Mercedes Stevenson. That seems to have push, been pushed to the back burner. And, and, that, and that, isn't that what we should be talking about as well? I mean, so when the allegation against Hayden Edmondson, for instance, came forward, I mean, as has been widely reported, this is an individual who uh, perhaps has had some some challenges raised about his conduct within the department previously, and yet then he was put in charge as chief of military personnel, who ultimately is in charge of personnel policy, and so that, of course, includes op honor. And so it suggests to me that the minister and certainly the government more broadly don't know their generals. And so, again, here's an opportunity for the minister to get much more involved. You know, if I was the minister, I'd be saying, I want to know who my senior general appointments are. I want to know what their past are. I want to know what their experience is, what their qualifications are. I want to make sure that I'm closely involved with how this department runs. I'm not going to tell them how to run their things, but I certainly want to know who's serving under me. And I think, again, it's, it's this indication that, for, in my view, uh, the minister is taking too much of a distance from a department that is a very complex department that is facing many challenges, not just, of course, in sexual misconduct, but if you think about procurement issues, you think about recruitment issues, you think about the many deployments that we have where I think there's opportunity um, to be more involved. But, of course, uh, we also have a minister who's very busy, as all ministers are. And so I think maybe uh, there's also a question perhaps for the minister staff about how do we allocate the time and the attention of the minister uh, in a time where, look, the inaction is having very deleterious consequences for the institution. If you look at the recruiting numbers, for instance, and if you look at the confidence that Canadians have in an institution that generally in democracies ranks as the institution with hands down, bar none, the highest, uh, the highest polling in terms of confidence, public confidence, um, and given the involvement with vaccine rollout and so forth, I think it is absolutely critical that we move expeditiously to restore the confidence of the members in uniform, uh, of civilians that serve, um, and of Canadians more broadly in the institution, and that's going to require political leadership.
Well, it certainly is, and and you're absolutely right. I mean, we all understand how busy ministers are. We get that, but in in the discussions with his staff and his deputies, uh, there there had to be some sort of a discussion that said, "Look, at if there's a red flag, I want to know about it right now." And and this was certainly this this screams red flag. So uh, the investigation continues. We'll see how this goes. We're right out of time on this one, Christian. But uh, always great to get your perspective on this. Thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure, and thank you for your time on this very important topic. It certainly is. Thanks again. Christian Lupak, of course, a professor at the Royal Military College at uh, Queen's University, of course, and a member of the McDonald Laurier Institute. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.